Hey food buffs, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. This is the incredible true story of the most iconic vegetarian food, tofurkey. Okay, Seth, can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. Seth Tibbet, founder and chairman of the Tofurkey Company in Hood River, Oregon. Nice. That is very enthusiastic. Yeah. I like it. So I know we're going to be talking about Tofurkey, but if you don't mind, I'd really like to start a lot earlier and just talk to you a bit about your childhood. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> I like to say often that I was raised by penguins. My mom had worked as a uh, secretary and typist for the federal government. Um, my father was <clears throat> an artist and he worked for the U.S. government in uh, shipping and tariffs. But he was on the side, he was a, an artist and he drew uh, penguins. He loved penguins and he would paint 300 Christmas cards with the penguins interacting with the family, which was my mother, my dad, and my brother, Bob, who's two years older than me. This was in Washington, D.C., right outside <clears throat> five blocks from the district line, and I was born in 1951. It was a kind of middle-class upbringing, and uh, I stayed in the Washington, D.C. area until I was 18, and I went to Ohio to Wittenberg University for college, and it was there that I became a elementary education major, not knowing what I wanted to do. When I had to, it came time to do my student teaching, they placed me in a classroom with a woman who was a hitter. And she was like hitting kids for stuff. And I went there one day and I went to my advisor and said, listen, I'm not gonna sit in this class and watch these kids be abused. And I, I would like to be reassigned. And he was like, well, we really don't have that option here. It's really too late for that. So you either have to take it or leave it. And I was like, okay, well, I will take the leave it option. So I dropped out of school and I didn't know what I was gonna do. When Seth dropped out, he looked for work at places that offered progressive education. He ended up volunteering as a naturalist at Antioch College, then working as a teacher naturalist once they opened a school in Southern Ohio. After a year of teaching outdoor school, I went back to school and got my teaching degree in a non-hitting, non-abusing classroom and headed west as soon as the ink dried on my diploma and ended up in Oregon where I also got a job teaching outdoor school in the Portland area schools for eight years. And, you know, I was a vegetarian then and I uh, had been reading about the farm, which is was a spiritual community of, in Tennessee that had 1,200 San Francisco hippies that had bought this land two hours south of Nashville. Um, they were very poor, but they were very on the cutting edge of, well, diet and soy products. They were making tofu, and then one of their members went to the NIH libraries in Maryland and was studying soy products and found out about tempeh. And then he was a microbiologist, so he brought tempeh spores back to the farm in Tennessee, and he started 
making tempeh for the 1,200 residents there because they needed protein and a good way to use these soybeans. Soon after he had started making commercial tempeh starter, I visited the farm in 1977 because I had a summer job teaching outdoor education to high school kids in Tennessee, two hours from the farm. So I went and I got some of the spores. I was one of the first people to get these tempeh spores because I had read about tempeh in their literature and it sounded so great. I was living in a tent that summer in Tennessee and I got the starter and I split the soybeans, soaked them overnight, split them by hand, put some of the magic culture on them and put them in a tray with a aluminum foil top and just set them out in the field. I went to bed, I came back the next day, I opened up the lid from the tray and oh my God, here was this beautiful white layer of mold. And it was growing right over these soybeans and they had little beads of water growing up on them. And I was like ecstatic. I was so excited and I was working with, you know, five or six other friends who actually weren't so excited about eating these moldy soybeans. In fact, they were kind of thinking they might die. <laughs> but I was like, no, no, we got to try it. And uh, so we cooked it up and we had okra, and silver queen, corn, sweet corn, and fried tempeh. And oh man, it was just love at first bite. That was uh, 1977 and 1978, I returned to Oregon and I started living in a teepee and I started making tempeh for friends and family and then groups would come out on the weekend so I would make batches, small batches of tempeh and I started making gradually bigger batches of tempeh. I had a there was an old refrigerator that I cleaned out there that wasn't working anymore. And I got some Christmas tree lights, not the LED lights of today, but the old Christmas tree lights that put out heat. And I lined the refrigerator with these Christmas tree lights and created the perfect 88 degree temperature to make five or 10 pounds of tempeh. And uh, I would sell it to the kitchen and they'd serve it to the guests. Seth was still an environmental educator at this point. However, environmental programs started to get cut. These changes pushed him towards selling tempeh. So I got back in the fall of 1980 and Ronald Reagan had just been elected president. And the word on the street was he wasn't so keen on these environmental ed programs, which were somewhat federally funded. About half of my jobs were Oregon funded, half were national federally funded. So he started cutting any program that had a ENV in front of the words, you know, anything environmental was out. So I was like, what am I going to do now? And I thought, well, tempeh is sort of new and there's nobody making tempeh in Portland. So maybe I'll try making tempeh. And I went to the local food co-op in Forest Grove and they agreed to rent me the kitchen for $25 a month. I could come in at four o'clock when their deli closed and make my tempeh, but I had to be out of there by 7 a.m. 
when the kitchen staff came in and started prepping for the day. So I uh, signed up for that and I was so excited about going into business. I knew nothing, I mean zero, about business. If you had a vote, like who's least likely to succeed in business, I would have won hands down because I didn't know anything about margin or markup or costing, how to price stuff. But I had this you know, dream of like bringing tempeh to America. So that was my dream, but I had no idea how to do it. And Robert brought one of the managers at the co-op, took me under his wings, and he was pulling his hair out trying to teach this stupid naturalist how to, you know, run a business and make money. So, and my my family was supportive, but I remember I went to Minnesota to visit my aunt for Christmas, and she was like, oh man, this is the stupidest idea I ever heard. Seth, this is a terrible idea trying to sell soy to the American people. We're a meat-eating country. And I was like, yeah, maybe, but I'm stupid enough to try. So I went back and I started, I bought like $2,500 of pots and pans and mill and equipment and outfitted my tempeh shop. But Robert was sort of skeptical about my ability to run the business and stay in business. So he said, you know what, maybe it'd be a good idea to go to the Small Business Administration and take a business class because they have these free business classes. I was like, okay, free, it's a good price, I'll do it. So I went into this room in Portland. It was in this fancy hotel and it was full of entrepreneurs. There was probably, you know, 100, 150 new entrepreneurs in there and they're all got their pencil sharpened and ready to get the word on how you run a business and this guy comes out and he's the old louisiana pacific vice president of marketing or something you know a logging company exec and he's in the three-piece business suit and everything and he's got these big rings on and he goes how many of you people are out there to save the world and I was like, yeah, that's me. And I, <laughs> my hand goes up, you know, and I look around and I'm like, oh, no one else has got their hand up. <laughs> and then he goes, I thought so. How many of you people are out there to make money? And everybody goes, yoo-hoo. <laughs> they're just going wild. And I'm like, damn, I've only been in business class five minutes. I'm already flunking out. Like, how can I not even see a rhetorical question? But... You know, I think about that guy a lot and uh, about that answer. And, you know, with the rate of failure in small businesses, 50% or more fail within the first five years. And looking at how much money I made in my first five years, if I had raised my hand for money, I'm pretty sure I would not be here and Tofurky would never have happened. So, and, th- and that said, you know, I've learned, of course, that money is an engine that you need to drive your dreams forward. Um, So I get what the guy was saying, but having a mission and an ideal of what you're going for really carried me through a lot of lean times. And I think it's really good to have both. So how were you getting the product out at the time? Oh, well, so in February, late February, 1981, I was making like 50 pound batches of tempeh. It took me eight hours to make 50 pounds of tempeh. And I would load up the tempeh once a week into my beat up $350 three door 
some body damage Datsun station wagon, and I would park around the corner from the local co-ops and natural food stores, of which there was maybe six or seven in Portland, because I was embarrassed at what a terrible looking car I had. I had about six different accounts, and I would drive around and deliver and take home, well, it was 50 pounds, and I think I was charging something like a dollar fifty ish a pound. So I would take home my seventy-five dollars if I sold everything. That's kind of how I first started selling was just locally in the Portland area. And then after about a month in business, I get this call from a natural food distributor in Portland. And he's like this distributor in California just went belly up and we want to take over their market. And we need a thousand pounds of tempeh a week starting in two months. Can you supply us? And I was like, oh my gosh, uh, I'm making like 50 to a hundred pounds a night. I don't know how I can do that. But I said, sure, I can do it. And at that point, I started looking around for uh, another home where I could work not just nights, but I could get bigger equipment and supply this growing market. Because I thought that my, my vision was that tempeh was going to be the next granola. I was like, well, the hippies were right about granola. They're probably right about tempeh, too. So Seth needed the money and space to make more tempeh. It was hard to find either. Fortunately, his older brother gave him a loan, and after several months of desperately searching for a larger space, Seth eventually found one. Somebody said, hey, you know, uh, this little town between Hood River and Trout Lake that's only 70 miles from Portland had an old school building and it's just sitting vacant. Maybe you could talk to the school board about that. So I went down and I drove to the school and I looked in the window. It was all locked up and there was this beautiful commercial kitchen. It had stainless steel sinks, tables, had a vent, stainless steel hood, tile floor with floor drains. I mean, it was perfect. It was small. It was probably 250 square feet, but it was everything I needed. And there was four classrooms and a gymnasium and a small little office even and bathrooms. It was 13,000 square feet of space. So this is 1981 in the fall and nobody knows what Tempe is in Portland. Like it's just being introduced there. And now I'm out in this redneck county, Klickitat County and I've got to go talk to the school board about renting out their building. So I make up some tempeh and I go to the school board meeting and I serve tempeh to these people. I mean, they must have thought I was coming from Mars. So they couldn't believe that somebody would try to make a living out of moldy soybeans. But then the question that I had been dreading comes up. And that's like, well, we would like to ultimately sell it, but it's been sitting out there vacant. It's not good to have the building vacant. We haven't been able to find anybody to rent it. How much rent could you afford to pay us? And at that time, I was grossing monthly about $1,300 a month. So I'm like, you know, thinking like, boy, in my budget, in my mind, I'm thinking I can't pay more than 300, 400 tops for rent. But then I'm, I'm saying, 
well, this is negotiation, so I better start low. So I said, I could offer you $150 a month. And at that point, it's like crickets. Like people are just like, oh, well, that's, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. And then Margaret Walker, this one really spunky, enthusiastic lady goes, what have we got to lose? I say we take it. <laughs> and, they, and I was like, oh, man, I should have said one hundred and forty dollars. So I rented 13,000 square feet for one hundred and fifty a month. That's amazing. I know it. It's shocking. <laughs> it is shocking. And so, you know, when you're bootstrapping a business and starting out, you don't have like there was no venture capital community in 1981. You know, nobody was calling me up going, I like I love your idea. And I know you don't have much of a product yet, but I think it's going to be something. How about we give you, you know, a million dollars startup capital and see what you can do with it. Nobody's doing that like they are today. But my brother was there. And in spite of his misgivings, his, his heart was bigger than his head about this being a savvy business move. So he loaned me $5,000. He was like trying to protect his little brother. And he came out. He went to that board meeting with me and he saw the school. And anyways, I uh, in early 1982, I started buying equipment and outfitting the school. And man, it was like the perfect fit for me. So Seth grew his tempeh company out of a school building in this little town. He had held community events there, people watched movies and played basketball there. He was even able to rent out extra classrooms. One of these classrooms was eventually rented out to a troop of traveling clowns. So we had the clowns, we had the box company. And so basically rent was kind of a, a push or even a little profit center. But then in 1982, the other thing that happened was, do you, do you know the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh? No. Okay. So the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was this Indian guru who got kicked out of India he was in Pune, India. And then he decided, I got to set up a commune in America. And so he came out to Eastern Oregon and set up, he bought this old, like thousand acre cattle ranch that was over grazed and in terrible shape. And it was, you know, five hour drive from Portland in the sagebrush country. And he started what was called Rajneeshpuram. And all of his followers were red and they were very controversial. Um, they were violating a million land use laws about what you could do on agricultural land. They were basically building a city and they were vegetarians. And so everybody was just on edge. And unlike the farm, which was a commune that loved their neighbors and really went out of their way to be kind to their neighbors. The Rajneeshis were very antagonistic. They had this woman, Sheila, who was their spokesperson, and she had a real edge to her. The neighbors all hated them. And one of the reasons they hated them was the closest town to their commune was called Antelope and it had about 100 people in there. And then the Rajneeshis moved enough of their people in there to dominate the voting, and they changed the name of Antelope to Rajneeshpuram. Wow. And so now that's a problem. And anyways, so the, this edgy group uh, is there, and they've changed the name of Antelope to Rajneeshpuram. 
and they're about to have 10,000 followers from all over the world come over to Rajneeshpuram and have a big conference in July. And so it's like May, I get these two red clad Rajneesh guys come over to the cafe and they walk into the cafe and they go, where's Seth Tibbet live? And these guys in the cafe are like, uh, you know, silently giving them the stink eye. And they direct them over to the school and they come in and they go, we want to buy some tempeh for our convention. Uh, we'll need 2,000 pounds because we're going to feed 10,000 people in one meal. And I was like, oh, great. That's a nice chunk of business for me. So we made, oh, it took us a couple months, but we made the 2,000 pounds and drove it over there. And it was like amazing place, you know, to visit. Like we, we kept inventing excuses to go over there because we just wanted to see what was happening. But they had this kitchen that had like, it was a temporary kitchen. There was probably 20 refrigerator semi-trucks backed up to it and 50 walks in a line. They were buying like top flight equipment because everybody that came there gave them all their money to the community and then they got to live for free. The Bhagwan, by the way, had 90 Rolls Royces. He was the biggest collection of Rolls Royces anywhere. 90. <laughs> what? And every day at one o'clock, the sannyasins, who were the red clad people, his followers would all line up along the road and the Bhagwan would drive by in, one, in a different Rolls Royce every day. And they would all get excited and they'd throw flowers in front of his path. And if he stared at them, they'd start crying. And it was crazy. Um, but uh, there was a lot of money there. And so I still think that that's probably the biggest meal of tempeh ever served in the U.S. was this meal in 1983 to 10,000 followers of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. By the way, there's a documentary about this group on Netflix. It's called Wild Wild Country. And if you're interested in how much crazier the story gets, you should watch it. It's, it's a really good documentary. But I will say that it is not kid-friendly. Anyhow, in 1984, the free apartment that Seth was living in was getting rented out. So he needed to find a new place to live. He needed somewhere cheap because he still wasn't making money. So he ended up living in a treehouse. He stayed in the treehouse for seven years. Even though I had such low expenses, I still wasn't making money. You know, it was just expensive getting product in and out of this little town and into Portland. And I wasn't charging enough probably because... I was low volume and trying to compete with bigger companies or whatever. But, you know, I was having a good time living up in the tree, great little community, building sales were growing every year. But still, by 1992, I had, I think I was grossing under $200,000. I would go to the tax guy every year and he would go, how much money did you lose this year and how are you still in business? By 1992, Seth was married and had a child, so he no longer lived in the treehouse. He had a family to think about, so he was starting to wonder whether Tempeh was ever going to be the next granola. He needed to figure something out. As a vegetarian, he had wondered for many years what to eat during Thanksgiving. So in 1994, when he had a taste of a fantastic tofu roast made by a company called Higher Taste, 
something finally clicked. He could combine that roast with a Thanksgiving-flavored tempeh recipe that he would shape like drumettes, and he could sell that as a Thanksgiving feast. So we had been working on a burger at that point, and the burger tasted more like Thanksgiving than it tasted like a burger. And I said, "Hey, how about if we market this under the name Tofurkey, and we make not burgers, but we shape these into drumettes, and we put in eight drumettes. We sell the roast, we sell the gravy, and we call it Tofurkey." And everybody goes, "Great idea, but stupid name." And so I was like,、mm, at that point, you know, I'm not making it, trying to be like this smart businessman and playing it straight. Let's try something new. Let's, because I like to have fun, and this is who I am. I'm just going to call it Tofurkey. So, against everybody's wishes, in 1995, we came out with the first Tofurkeys, and we put them in a box, and we had a 29.95 price tag on it. And I started offering them to stores that had been buying tempeh from me in Portland and in Seattle, and some down in LA. Well, a lot of people were very skeptical of the name and the concept and the price, but Certain ones did take it, and <clears throat> it became like a hit. Fun fact here: Tofurkey was one of the first foods to be sold on the internet. Before Tofurkey had a lot of distribution, Seth's neighbor Dave told Seth that he could get more distribution by selling Tofurkeys online. And we were like, "What do you mean online? Like, he's like through the internet. People will order on the internet." And I was like, "Boy, that's crazy." And because at that point there was like 30% of America had computers. At this time, Dave was also trying to sell books on his website. This was around the same time that Amazon was just starting up. Back in the 1990s, it wasn't a normal thing to buy things off the internet. Dave was like, "Oh yeah, in the future, you know, it's, it, bookstores will have trouble staying in business because this will be the main way people buy everything." And they were, they go, well, that's a really crazy idea. But we did have this guy in here like a week ago, and we made a tentative deal with him just to cover ourselves. And he was talking about doing the same thing. And he had some weird name. It was like something out of the jungle. It was like Amazonia or something. And they had just finished cutting a deal with Bezos for selling books online just to cover themselves, but they were really skeptical. And so Dave did manage to find them, and he managed to find somebody that would run credit cards online because that was very difficult too. And he set up a shop there in his house where he would take orders both online and by phone. So he took orders, and we shipped out about three or four hundred of these tofurkeys on the Monday before Thanksgiving, all across the country on FedEx. And that year, we sold <clears throat> about fifteen hundred. So this is nineteen ninety-six. The name tofurkey and the concept of a tofu Thanksgiving turkey was very important for its success. It is just so easy to understand and so memorable. It basically advertised itself. Back when Tofurkey had no money for advertisements, people were talking about it on the Today Show and the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I think it was 
uh, Alicia Silverstone, you know, they were talking about, yeah, I had a tofurkey for Thanksgiving and then they'd show the box. And so it was really um, for a brand like we didn't have money to buy TV advertisement or really any advertisement at that point because we were still yet to be profitable. And we were getting all this media play just on the name Tofurky. But it was early days for Tofurky at this point. So the recipe hadn't been perfected yet. The big issue was that while Tofurky was great fresh, the roast became spongy when it was frozen. If you've ever froze tofu, you know what I'm talking about. It really changes the texture because so much of tofu is water that it really doesn't freeze very well. We were still looking for a recipe. So the next year, 1997, this guy comes to my office and he says, I figured out how to make a roast out of vital wheat gluten. <clears throat> then he showed me this roast he had made, and it was pretty good. It had the stuffing and the casing and everything. And so he said, I have a plant uh, that I've contracted with in Chico, California, that can make these for you. I was... Like, could they add tofu to them? Because I thought that the recipe was a little dense and we were also a soy product company and soy products were very popular then. So we added tofu to it and it turned out to be great. It made the product lighter and better texture. And, you know, now we had a roast that you could carve and it had a stuffing right in the center, but it could also, more importantly, it could freeze. And we needed it to freeze because we needed to send it all over America. The tofurkey recipe has been tweaked over the years. But to this day, it remains very similar to its 1997 form. It could now be frozen without ruining the texture. And tofurkey became increasingly popular. You know, at one point, I was sitting there on a phone call with the Washington Post and the New York Times called. And we had to put the Post on hold to talk to the Times. And then it was the Wall Street Journal and TV and radio. And it just was really starting to be a viral thing, even without social media or the Internet. We didn't even have a website at that point. We didn't have our first website until 1999. But even though Tofurky was getting extremely popular, it was a seasonal product. People bought it during Christmas and Thanksgiving, but they weren't buying it outside the holidays. So Seth had to think of a product that could be sold year round. So we were just like, wonder how turkey manufacturers who sell most of their holiday products in the last quarter of the year, what do they do? And then we were like, well, they, they have deli slices, sausage and all that. So... We got one of these roasts and we bought a, a small slicer and it sliced beautifully. So we then went to the manufacturer and said, could you make slicing logs for us? And they were like, oh, yeah, that'd be easy. So now we were buying not just roasts, but year round, we, we introduced Tofurky Deli Slices. And they would send the logs up, we'd slice them, we'd smoke them, we'd flavor them, and we had an original uh, hickory smoked and a peppered version. <clears throat> we introduced those at a trade show in Baltimore, 1997, and they just were an instant hit. People were just going crazy for them. Soon after, they bought the recipe with the wheat gluten so they could start making the tofurkey in-house rather than shipping it from Chico, California. 
And that was the year where we really, after, uh, well, we'd been in business about 16, 17 years then, and we finally became profitable. This was like 1998 uh, that we started producing Tofurky in-house here. One event that got Tofurky a lot of attention was a contest that they held for kids to draw what they thought the Tofurky would look like in the wild. They got hundreds of drawings. It was interesting because most people made like turkeys and then they had like carrot legs and beans for feathers and they had eyes and a face. And this, of course, was a vegan product, so it shouldn't have a face. There was only two out of the hundreds of drawings that we got that didn't have a face. And one of those won, and it was all about these roasts fall down from the tofurkey tree that's out in the woods in the fall, and we gather them, and we make them into a product then. So it was a really well-done story, and so we published that story, and then the Wall Street Journal did a follow-up story. We started getting on Food Network and Modern Marvels and Nightline and it was just everybody wanted to come out here and they wanted to film and they wanted to do the Toferky story. And it was every year, you know, we didn't have a PR company. We didn't have social media. We just had this very quirky, interesting product that people that were always trying to find a new angle to the Thanksgiving story wanted to talk about. And eventually in about 2005 that we got our first sort of placement outside the natural food system and into the more mainstream. Once Trader Joe's and Publix started selling Tofurky, that really opened the doors to other supermarkets putting it in their stores as well. Tofurky truly became a household name. And they got to this point in such an astounding way. So we had, you know, up until 2013, we had under a million dollars worth of long-term debt. And, you know, we had grown the company up to this $20, $30 million a year company, and it had virtually no debt. And we had no equity partners other than my brother, who still owned 27%, and my mom, who had died by then, 13%. And in the dividing up of the estate, I got that. So it was really just this family run independent operation that had never sold any equity. And that still actually is the case today where we are independent family owned. I've divided up some of my shares to my wife, my son, and my stepson, Jamie, who is now the CEO and president of Tofurky and doing a great job handling the day-to-day, which leaves me free to travel the world in the name of the plant-based foods movement and consult with companies, speak at conventions, and just see this whole exciting movement that's happening right now all around the world, actually, towards plant-based foods in a way that I could never imagine. The Tofurky story is endlessly fascinating, so I'll give you one more fun fact. I asked Seth why Tofurky is spelled without an E, and here's the answer. So you spelled Tofurky without an E. Why was that? Oh, that's a great question. 
So back in 1995-96, the way that you got in touch with companies was through the phone a lot. You know, it was either through letters or for phones. So I, the 800 number was like vital. So what I wanted was 1-800-TOFURKEY. The thing about it was the E messed that up because the E made tofurkey an eight-letter word. And I wanted tofurkey to be a seven because that's how many numbers there were in a phone, you know, 1-800-863-8759, whatever it is. And so that was one reason. The second reason was I didn't invent the name Tofurky. And you had, I had seen product even in 1980 when I was just delivering tempeh around to Portland. 1981, there was a Tofurky sandwich and it was spelled E-Y. And so others had, you could even find references to Tofurky with the E on the internet. So to differentiate the brand from this more generic thing, I also thought, you know, it was like the phone number, but differentiate from generic Tofurky too. So the problem was we had that first year and we published it on our brochures and on the package. We said, hey, if you have a comment, call us at 1-800-TOFURKEY. The thing was, most people automatically put the E in there when they dialed 1-800-TOFURKEY. And so we were like, how come this 800 phone number doesn't get all these calls? Like, what, what's <laughs> up with that? And so then after the Tofurkey, uh season was over that year, I was like, huh, I wonder what happens if you call 1-800-TOFURKEY with the E in there. So I call up. Instead of having the Y as the last number, I had the E, and I call it up, and I get this hair salon in Los Angeles, and this woman is like, oh, my God, you're the one that's caused all these problems. You know how many <laughs> calls I've been getting for to this tofu turkey thing, and I don't know what to send them, and I just tell them I got the wrong number. So possible mistake, because <laughs> everybody... You know, we have the URL, T-O-F-U-R-K-Y and T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y. We have both. But, you know, it's one of those things, if I had a nickel for everyone that writes T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y, be billionaire. But I didn't. So it's no E in Tofurky. No I in T, no E in Tofurky. This is why I love doing the podcast, because I get to find out these mysterious little things. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> weird. I'm, I... I but it's worked out. I like it now. Well, food buffs, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like the podcast, please do subscribe if you haven't already, and I will talk to you next time.